HSD are experts in delivering tech solutions to the vet sector, working with clients such as the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, ASQA and the VRQA. HSD understand the complexities of VET, its systems and data. We specialise in systems integration, customer relationship management systems, Microsoft platforms and migrating organisations to the cloud. So whether you're looking for advice on integrating your systems, meeting your data reporting requirements or looking to gain insights into your stakeholders, HSD are here to help. Visit hsd.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 65 of the podcast, and this week I'm delighted to be speaking with Professor Sarah Todd, Vice President Global at Griffith University, and also the President of API, the Asia-Pacific Association for International Education, amongst a number of other roles she has in the sector. I'm sure that everyone in the international education sector knows Sarah and will have heard her speak before, but in this interview, she discusses with me where the international education sector is now as we emerge from, but we're not yet, post-COVID and reflects on some of the lessons she and Griffith University have learned from their experiences during the pandemic, and then shares some of her takeaways from this year's API conference. It was a conference I also attended virtually, um, and it was very noticeable to me how different some of the conversations were within the broader API conference delegates when compared with the kinds of conversations we've been having within the international education sector in Australia for the last few months. Some of the more noticeable differences that struck me were API's conversations were anchored in and focused on very often, uh, the sustainable development goals, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the place of technology and its impact and how it's changing learning, not just how it's also changing uh, international student recruitment. Uh, the importance of partnerships was another key theme which just kept coming through in, in the um, presentations and sharing lessons from those partnerships. Interestingly, there was little or no discussion of a need to diversify student cohorts and no discussion of national security issues, issues which have preoccupied at least parts of the international education sector here in Australia for some time. Sarah had lots of her own great insights from the conference, and I'm sure that, like me, you'll learn a lot from uh, our interview. And, of course, as I always do, I kick things off by asking her a bit about her background as well as the similarities and differences between international education in New Zealand and here in Australia. As you'll hear, I really enjoyed this discussion, and I'm sure you will too. My great pleasure to be joined today by Professor Sarah Todd, Vice President Global at Griffith University. Sarah, welcome. Lovely to have you on the podcast. 
Thanks, Claire. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you. Oh, aren't you lovely? Um, I always start uh, my questions by hounding my guests to tell me about themselves. I'm as interested in the people that I talk to as their views on what's happening in the sector. And I know that in your background, you've worked in international education in both Australia, obviously, but also in New Zealand. And you're a busy woman. You don't just do your work within the university, but you've also had roles in international education, such as your role with um, Study Gold Coast and IEAA and others. So that's my very poor introduction to your career and who you are. Why don't you give us the the, the proper uh, summary of, of who you are and what it is that you do? Uh, unfortunately, the older you get, the longer it takes to give a summary. I'll give you an abbreviated version or we'll be here all day. Um, so I think one of the things I love about international education is like you, Claire, I'm interested in the backgrounds of people. And um, there are now people coming through that that is their profession. They're an international education professional. But um, I'm like many and, and didn't come directly into international education. But actually, when I reflect back, I did um, have the opportunity when I was at high school, I did a French exchange to New Caledonia with a homestay family. And I did my last year of high school in Japan as a Rotary Exchange student. So no doubt um, um, they were definitely formative experiences and, and go some way to explaining why I'm where I am now. But um, I actually um, started as an academic at the University of Otago in the business school and um, made my way through to being professor of marketing there and, and then academic dean of the business school and Otago's business school was very uh, connected internationally and um, I'd been a champion of student mobility and done various other things, um, supervised a few international PhD students as an academic but um, when I was in the dean role in the business school uh, I had the opportunity to look after a lot of the um, business school's international relationships and um, then Otago's inaugural pro-vice-chancellor role came up. They hadn't had a senior strategic role on the executive group prior to that. And um, I put my hand up um, at the last moment, actually. And funnily enough, <clears throat> they'd actually had me down to be on the selection panels. <laughs> Clearly, I was a wild card. <laughs> had to get myself off that very quickly. Um, and probably surprised them and myself by getting the role. Um, and spent... Um, seven and a half years very happily at the University of Otago um, and it was a dream job in many ways. I'd been a student, I'd been an academic staff member, I had a great understanding and love of the university. Um, got approached about other jobs and, and um, as you mentioned, had got involved in various committees, Education New Zealand and Education Dunedin and all of the other ones. Um, and um, but was very happy and, and got approached about a few jobs in Australia. And, and then there was something about the Griffith one that made me think that's a really interesting opportunity. And for people who know Otago and know Griffith, very different universities. And um, I think if you're going to, if you're in a role you love, if you're taking a change, it needs to be because it stretches you in some way or um, I'm, I'd never be one of those people um, I think who'd change role, just change my business card and carry on. I need to feel passionate about the university and particularly in international, I need to feel really committed and genuine and authentic about the university because we really are ambassadors for our institutions. So um, just it's coming up to eight and a half years ago. It'll be June. I um, interviewed for the Griffith role on my way back from NAPSA, actually. Um, and um yeah, the rest is history. So it's now just been just over eight years that I've been at, at Griffith. It has um, 
definitely challenged me in lots of ways and and like many the last couple of years has been a particularly challenging time in international education but um I think I probably expected more similarities between New Zealand and Australia um particularly staying in international education but there are lots of differences and I think that's often the way between New Zealand and Australia we assume similarities um and and then there's differences so um you know, I remember my first couple of weeks sitting through discussions about Alicos and EFTSOL and having not a clue what anyone was talking about. And, and given the English Language Institute reports to me, that was a problem that I didn't know what Alicos was. But Australian international education has lots of acronyms and, and things that are uh, different to New Zealand. And so I developed my own little glossary so that I could bluff with confidence for the first little while. And, you know, now it's, um, I just recently went to, I think it was Edified Drinks in Brisbane recently. And, you know, it's really wonderful now walking in and um, there's so many familiar faces and people you know, and I think it's such a, a warm and welcoming community to be a part of. And, and you forget those days when you arrived and didn't know who anybody was. So, yeah, lots of boards, lots of acronyms, and, um, lots of vowels and international education associations. So oh, um, brilliant. Feel, feel privileged to be a part of it. Oh, well, I think you obviously um, make a really significant contribution. And I should just say we share having both. Uh, I grew up in New Zealand yeah. uh, and I also did the school trip to New Caledonia. All right. I didn't, I didn't manage to wangle um, a high school, you know, final year in, in Japan, but yeah. I do have, we'll have to have a sit down in the chat. Yes, yes. Mine was a very interesting uh, couple that of weeks. That was mine. Fun, and it's complete with Scottish country dancing in our films, oh. which now um, I don't know what, as a New Zealander, I was doing in New Caledonia <laughs> Scottish country dancing, but I think it shows how... Um, World has moved. Great New Zealand's cultural awareness um, yes. and pride in its own culture and international education has probably moved considerably since I'm, sure. I'm sure that's the case. Now you spoke <coughs> about in your role uh, the cha- ever, ever so briefly the challenges of leading through COVID and I wonder you know without it being too traumatic to look back on what you've been through and what the university's been through in the last couple of years but if you could talk us through some of the changes that that you've had to make and where things look like they're at now as borders are reopening. Okay, not all students feel comfortable about travelling yet. Uh, where, where is the university at? Which things that you mm. made changes are you sticking with? Uh, fill us in. Thanks. I think um, there's probably two parts to that. So um, as a member of the senior executive, so separate from international, um, obviously, like many leaders in universities across Australia, we went through some really challenging decision making. And um, Griffith went out fairly early. Um, we went through a comprehensive review. Uh, you know, different universities have handled um, the need to make changes and cuts in different ways. Um, we reviewed everything across the university and it wasn't just about financial cuts, it was about um, ensuring that the university was sustainable going forward and in fact um, as some people know it was called R2S and it was Roadmap to Sustainability. Um, Sadly though for a lot of staff what it would have been seen as is cuts and redundancies because that's the most evident outcome. Um, Like many international portfolios um, there was a lot of investigation and exploration and crystal ball gazing as to what the future might look like for international education. And um, 
English language was obviously has been severely impacted and we've seen the loss of some quality private providers across Australia in the last couple of years and uh, university language institutes have not been immune either and and that was you know one of the toughest things was um, having to restructure the English Language Institute and um, we saw people who have been teachers in English language for 25 30 years leaving um, and and leaving both the university and the um, sector I think in a really um, unfortunate way and similarly um, staff in other areas we um, took the opportunity you know a lot of universities cut back on their mobility um, staffing and things which I think is really sad I'm, I am very concerned about the loss of capacity and, and professionals coming through um, because you know, if there's nothing for people to do, there's nothing for people to do. And so we actually merged things like international relations and, and student mobility and into international partnerships. And of course, as well as COVID, um, we've been dealing with um, foreign relations legislation. And, you know, we didn't have enough to do in 2020, so the government gave us a bit more. Um, and so that was a good time to review and think, well, how did we take a, a holistic oversight of all of our institutional partnerships and things? So again, the loss of some great people um, and knowledge and expertise. But I think um, the structure we've come out with is actually stronger than the structure we went in with. Um, we've merged admissions and compliance. Um, overall, I have to say that compared to colleagues at some universities, um, and apart from the obvious areas like the English Language Institute, we did lose a number of team members across Griffith International, but the university remained very committed to international education. And um, so we did not lose anybody in admissions or marketing. So I have the entire one-stop shop at Griffith. I have everything, um, including the Confucius Institute and um, short course capacity, all of those areas. And um, we took a really strategic overview and said this, we had just done our university new strategic plan uh, consultation in 2019, didn't have COVID on the um, possible risks when we did our SWOT analysis. But we did say um, throughout, right, this is the strategic plan. Are we still, do we still believe those goals and outcomes are where we want to go to in 2025 might take us a little bit longer. And we did have a, a commitment to um, increasing the international student numbers across our campuses. And so it was like, well, we have to keep the infrastructure there to be ready for that. And um, staff have been amazing. Um, I think, for me, a silver lining, and I'm focused on silver linings out of COVID, um, is the shift to virtual recruitment, um, virtual engagement, support of um, our agent network and partner institutions around the world. It's really been great. Um, it's always, funnily enough, I've always said in international, I wonder if we stopped the marketing staff flying for a year would we still recruit students? And what do you know? Turns out you can. Um, and I'm not suggesting in any way at all that that replaces that face-to-face -face interaction that we know is so important. And I think one of the learnings for me, um, whether it was university partners around the world, whether it was agents, that where there was already a strong face-to-face um, -face or personal relationship that's been built up over year, the years, it was far easier to have those um, virtual conversations and meetings. The development of new partnerships, I think um, many of us have learned, is far more challenging, um, particularly in a multi-language situation. And 
you just don't have those other cues around you. You know, you get a very one-dimensional view of somebody and you don't pick up the context or the environment. You don't have an opportunity to walk around the university and work out how, you know, if it's a student mobility partner or, or whatever it is that you're looking for. So I think... Um, Existing relationships um, we've managed to maintain and nurture and some are stronger. Um, some of them, you know, I learned that um, one of the things I ran um, was uh, in addition to the marketing staff catching up with all of their agents regularly around the world virtually, I ran um, sort of coffee sessions for key agents in every part of the world um, and would just sort of allocate a week and go around the world and you know and um, that was great for me because I'd never normally take a week to go around the world and visit all our agents but you know one evening I could be at home and I was chatting with our European study abroad partners they were having their early morning coffee I was probably having a wine um, and then um, you know and then I could chat with our American study abroad partners who obviously study abroad's been you know really difficult so really important important to stay in touch with them. Uh, recruitment agents, you know, I could meet with our uh, Southeast Asia agents at one time or our South Asian and, and really talk to them informally about um, what were their challenges and how could we help them in different ways. So that's been a learning for me and it's something I want to take forward as well personally is that um, it's not a case of saying, well, I won't be there for six months and I'll try and fit in lunch with you. It's actually, we can get them together. And um, One of the things I realised is, although they compete, they actually really um, valued the opportunity to get together and network because they weren't seeing each other either. So we got them together on a, a screen and um, where that sounds, it was actually really positive in terms of our relationships. So just, I think we all learnt different ways of working. And now it's about managing um staff desires to work from home and getting that balance between being in the office and, and you know, as leaders, again, challenging around how we manage hybrid and remote workplaces and for universities that are very much community and international students come and want to see people on campus, how do you balance that? I always say staff are part of the product and how do you balance that against staff desires to work more flexibly? So challenges going forward. That um, oh, no, sort of things, yeah. Sounds great. And I really love that sense of you being able to layer and add to your relationships because everybody's kind of locked behind a screen mm. for mm. the last couple of years and how that's really added to uh, your existing partnerships. That's yeah. a, a real strength that you're right. Otherwise, none of us would have got to because we no. all thought it had to be in person and there wasn't sufficient time for yeah. that. yeah. And what about any reflections with students coming back mm. this year? What's that sort of felt like or been the experience? I, I think um, for many of us, and, and I reflected on it quite a bit, we were all hanging out for the border announcement. <laughs> and in Queensland, it took a little longer to come. And, and that in itself brought some frustration. So although I was delighted for colleagues in other states, I was incredibly frustrated and, and um had worked closely with Queensland universities on trying to get student arrival plans up. And <laughs> never did I think I'd know how much it cost to charter a jet and the way you could transit and what you could do. The learning opportunities we have had, I could be a travel agent. Um, so um, I think um, it was really interesting, and I, I, I don't think I'm alone, actually, that instead of euphoria, I thought, oh, no, this brings a whole lot more challenges with it because we've got students who have, um, you know, we've managed to keep them engaged in study, but, you know, you had nursing accreditation bodies saying you can only do so many credit points overseas and you've got others. So students weren't coming back 
um, having commenced online or been online, they weren't coming back with standard program structures and slotting equally back. Planes weren't all suddenly and still aren't all suddenly in the air. Um, some countries still, you know, it's, it's hard for students to get out. We had Omicron in January. Um, Queensland followed that up with flooding and, and, you know, now in northern New mm. South Wales as well, which, you know, we had just got some students back and then we closed our campuses because of flooding. And, um, you know, I was on campus and, talking to some lost international students. And ironically, that day the sun was shining and they're looking around going, everything's closed. And I said, mm, there's flooding. <laughs> they couldn't, you know, nobody had a clue. So um, I think it was a reminder that not all suddenly got better. Um, but having said that, um, I think the having the students back on campus, the vibrancy is what we have all missed so much for the last couple of years. And seeing students engaging and um, seeing the way staff are responding, and it's just been fantastic. And it's um, it couldn't have come soon enough. And I don't know how much resilience we all had to keep going any longer, actually. <laughs> I think we were all getting to the point. So I've actually just sent staff my Easter break email. And um, when I reflect back, you know, it's it's nearly the end of April and the year is flying by and we still have students studying offshore and um, can't get here and, you know, trying to temper expectations internally with academics that, um, no, it's not all suddenly okay. <laughs> we won't suddenly have everybody here. You know, it could take nine months for students mm -hmm. to get here. I realistically think it'll be nine months. Um, our commencing numbers are ahead of forecast for this trimester, which is great, and, again, gives, um, I think, um, welcome um, feedback to admissions and recruitment teams that everything they've been working on has been worthwhile. Um, I think for a university like Griffith, we're very pipeline dependent. So we have our Navitas partner, Griffith College. We have our own English language institution, and other partnerships. And um, I think um, and no surprise to anybody that obviously the pipeline is going to take a little bit longer to fill back up again. And so we've seen a boost of directly commencing students, but our mid-year intake, I think we all need to be very conscious that we might have got a little bit of a blip, but we won't necessarily um, have that pipeline flowing through and that will affect some disciplines and some parts of the university more than others. So it's, um, you know, it's for the last couple of years, colleagues haven't pressured me too much about numbers. It's just like anyone you could get was good, but now it's it's like, okay, well, where are they all? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so um, this trimester is good, but I think we need to think. Um, I think the other big challenge for all of us is um, is making sure we don't go back to where things were, um, that we take the learnings from the last couple of years. And um, I've challenged all of the recruitment team to really think um, as we ease our own travel guidelines for the university you know, this shouldn't mean that you revert to your marketing plan from 2019. And um, if it does, then we've lost any good that came out of the last couple of years. So really thinking about how we work, um, where do you need to be in person? When do you need to be there in person? Uh, and how does that balance against other opportunities? So, Oh, you give such rich descriptions of 
what's happening at the university and thinking through what that means. So, uh, yes, we're all, thank goodness, borders are yeah. open and yes. some students are back, but let's not uh, get too carried away. This is going to take it probably till next year yeah. when things really start to normalise and in normalising, let's not go back to a 29 yeah. version think- of normal. And then I think as a country, um, you know, we we took a reputational hit and uh, we could discuss the reasons why, but I think we um, we all know we did. And I think we need to be realistic about how long that takes to rebuild confidence and, and not just confidence among students and their parents and other stakeholders, but confidence among the agent network because, um, you know, Australian universities... Um, have great relationships and, and well-managed agent networks. I think, you know, we're very advanced and I've just been reading about um, some of the challenges in, in Canada and, and various other countries and, you know, there is reference to Australia and you know, I think many of us are doing our ESOS submissions at the moment and we shouldn't lose sight of the very well-regulated and um, good practices and, and sharing of best practice across um, universities that there are particularly around issues like agent management. But, um, and then we've all done our agent engagement as we've discussed over the last couple of years, but the reality is um, agents need income as well and they get income when we pay commission on an enrolment. And if students were looking elsewhere, um, you know, apart from COVID, obviously geopolitical tensions, it's not surprising that some agents that previously would have had Australia and New Zealand as their primary focus, and and those specialist agents are really important. But, you know, New Zealand's still not completely open. Australia, um, the timing wasn't great in terms of getting students in for this academic year. Um, So we really need to be mindful and how do we win back their trust and confidence because they've understandably looked to develop partnerships in other parts of the world. Yeah. And it's a really salient point. And, in fact, it takes nicely to um, my final question, which goes to, amongst all the other things that you do, you're also the president of API, the Asia Pacific Association for International Education, and it's just held its annual conference, which I was delighted to be able to, you know, zoom into many sessions of. And it was, a, to me, a noticeably different dialogue than we've been having in Australia over Mm. the last couple of years Mm. about international education. Mm. So I wonder, did you want to share some key takeaways that you got out of the conference and how they do or don't fit with our sort of discussions about international education here? Well, I think as everybody knows, it was, you know, um, third time unlucky for trying to get API to Vancouver. <laughs> One of the reasons um, the board um, wanted API to go to Vancouver was that um, Canada, you know, like Australia, has a particular approach to international education and also has a very strong um, focus on um Indigenous and and First Peoples and and how does that fit with international education? And that's not often a dialogue that we hear, actually. And actually, if you look more broadly across the Asia-Pacific, there are a number of Indigenous peoples and their voices are often silent in discussions about international education, which is 
interesting, given that we are all supposed to be and are culturally competent and culturally literate. Often we're much better at dealing with um, international cultures than what we are dealing with our own. And, um, you know, that we might all be very fluent in what to do when we're in a certain country, but maybe not so good at thinking about that. And, um, you know, in Australia, there's been lots of conversations that I've been involved with at Universities Australia around how we increase Indigenous student participation um, in the New Colombo plan and other student mobility and things, we all know the stats. And so that was something that the local organising team in Vancouver was very keen on having that theme running through. The other reason um, that Vancouver was appealing as a destination for that conference was around that nexus between Asia and the Pacific and, and how, you know, a lot of people, um, I think, forget that Vancouver <laughs> is actually part of the Asia Pacific and it was described as the North Americas and it's not, but it was that bridge between the North Americas and Asia Pacific that we were interested in exploring. So I think um, I think it did come through, um, but at the same time, since that conference was originally um, set up for Vancouver, we have had this um massive shift towards being far more focused on environmental sustainability and our carbon footprint as an international education community. Um, And of course, with COVID, that's accelerated that discussion and our opportunities. We've been more focused around virtual internships and virtual mobility and increasing participation. So I think, um, unfortunately, I was ill on the last day, so I missed the last day, ironically, of AFI. Um, so many years in the planning and I didn't quite get out of bed, but um, which was disappointing. But listening back to some of the sessions that I missed as well, it was really good to hear people really thinking about um, how can we work together? For API, it's always difficult to talk about the region because we all know how diverse the region is, whether it's multicultural, multilingual, different education systems, different political um, influences and things. But I think um, we've also seen over the last couple of years quite a shift towards intra-regional cooperation and partnerships. And I think that was um, will definitely be a theme for forthcoming API conversations as well, is that it's not just... You know, I think originally API was set up so that the rest of the world could come and learn how to partner with the Asia Pacific. We've matured and now it's very much about, well, how can we be working across the Asia Pacific together? And um, again, schemes like the NCP have reinforced that, that it's really important that our students and students across the region more broadly um, have a good understanding of what's available within their region as well. So sort of intra-regionality versus internationalisation, I think, will be an ongoing conversation. It was a a significant takeaway that I had as well. The the description of those partnerships that institutions have, two or three different countries and institutions uh, across the region and um, how they've kept them going through COVID and the lessons that they've learned from them. Um, So it was, uh, I certainly um, got a a lot out of it, sorry. One of the things that's been um, that I would have liked to have progressed um, as president that has been challenging is that we wanted to um, really focus on building the capacity of universities across the Asia Pacific because there's you know there's Australia, New Zealand, Vancouver, um, you know there's very established international offices and ways of managing partnerships and things and and then you look across the Asia Pacific and there's 
countries and universities really wanting to increase their internationalisation. And I really hope that going forward, that's something the association can do is, um, and I might be calling on some colleagues in AUIDF on um, how that, you know, they can be involved in sort of that cross-regional mentoring and and so that not everybody's out there rebuilding. Again, we all um, can share best practice. And I think that would be great for the whole region as well. What a great note to end on. I fully support you in, in those efforts. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for being so generous with your time um, and talking us through um, such a wealth of ideas and learnings. I'm sure listeners will find it absolutely as fascinating as I have. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claire, and happy Easter. <laughs> happy Easter to you too.